Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we've been working our way slowly through the uh, St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, and we're taking it very slowly, aren't we, Ken? I mean, we're... Uh, in fact, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, that uh, when you imagine the first Christians receiving these letters from Paul, uh, you know, Romans is a fairly long letter. It probably took up a, a few sheets of parchment, uh, at least. Uh, parchment was not cheap in, yeah. in those days, and they would not have had individual copies. They would have not have lectionaries in the pews, their own Bibles. They would have only heard it read from a pulpit, and most likely in someone's home, in a home church, and so Romans would have been a long book to, in one sitting to hear. And I was imagining that all the, the Christians that were hearing this letter from Paul, some of them had Jewish backgrounds, some of them had uh, pagan Gentile backgrounds. I could almost imagine them saying, as they read, for example, through verse chapter 4, which we're going to look at, Ken, I can almost imagine them somebody raising their hand and say, wait, wait, stop there a second. Uh, let's pause here. Uh, what did he say? Uh, you know, what are they talking about? And so it may have taken uh, as long as for them to get through the Book of Romans as we are, as people are asking, you got to fill in the background to Abraham. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that's what I'm asking yeah. essentially you to do every week, Ken, as we begin, uh, and that is we know that some folk are maybe turning in for the first time, and uh, so it's important to hear the uh, the whole book of, of the, the text that we're looking at in the context of Romans. So we're going to look at that in a bit. We always have some emails, though, to join, uh, to begin our program, and we thank you for the emails we're getting from you. Uh, we'd love to get more, which you can... Uh, do if you go to the deepinscription.com website. But uh, Ken, we got an email this week, and it's a good email. Uh, and if, but if Bob's listening, I may admit there's a little bit of obtuseness to it. So we're gonna it's a it's a tough one, but I think it's a good one. And, and Bob writes, dear Ken and Mark, last week you discussed Romans four four, which said, now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. End of quote. Recently, someone pointed out Philippians 2.12, quote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, unquote. Could you compare and contrast these two verses and discuss how they relate to servile and filial fear? <laughs> well, thanks, Bob. Uh, that's really a good question, Ken, because those two verses, one says a truth about works in the context uh, in the context of Paul saying works are not how we're saved, but yet in Philippians, he wrote to those Christians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So first of all, how do you compare or contrast those two verses, Ken? Yeah, and that's a very good question. I want to point out uh, something that makes uh, the, di the difficulty even a little bit more difficult, and that is that... Uh, in the versions that we have often read in English, uh, Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
And in Protestant, Protestant pastors and theologians um, have often emphasized this means work out the implications of your salvation. It doesn't mean that you're working for your salvation. But the Greek word that's in Philippians 2.12, katargazomai, can actually mean to work for, to work toward something. So Paul could be saying that you should work for your salvation with fear and trembling. You should work, you should work, um, uh, work toward your salvation because your salvation is not complete. Jesus, Paul's going to say this in, in Romans chapter 15, that your salvation is closer now than the day in which you believed. Um, so he's talking about salvation in the future sense. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4, that was quoted by Bob, uh, where it says, To the one who works is, is not accounted according to, um, to grace, but according to what is due. This is stating the Old Testament principle that if, you, if what you work for, you'll get a reward for, right? And this is what, what Paul is, uh, is emphasizing, that this is, there's a contrast between working for your salvation and receiving it freely by grace. Now, how do we put those two things together? We understand that they're talking about slightly different things, and therefore they can't really be contradictory. One is in, Philippi, in Romans 4.4, 4, Paul is giving us the principle that for the way that we work, we will be rewarded. And by the way, Paul does say back in chapter 2 of Romans that as we we will be judged based upon our works. So the, the principle of works is not excluded. But what he's saying is, um, how do we enter into the state of grace? How do we enter into the, the journey of salvation? Chapter 4 of Romans is saying that we enter into it the same way Abraham did, namely by believing God, by trusting God, by entering into a relationship with God. But in Philippians 2.12, Paul is already assuming that you're in that relationship with God. He's then saying that you complete that journey of faith by working out your salvation or working toward your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's talking about slightly different things uh, and, and cannot therefore be really in contradiction with one another. Yeah, let me, uh, let me jump in there, Ken, because w this is one of the reasons, I, this, this touches one of the reasons why when I was a Presbyterian pastor, Calvinist, you were also one, yourself, Ken, that we struggled with much of the things that our Lord Jesus said in his preaching. Because when yeah, you look at true. the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord talks about rewards for what we do. And, for example, in, especially in chapter 6, when he deals with the issue of prayer and fasting and almsgiving, he talks about the attitude behind what we do. And that, to me, is the key here, is the attitude behind why we are doing things, why we are reaching out in love to a neighbor, why we are um, giving money to the church. Mm -hmm. um, it's the attitude behind the works that is the key, I think, to understanding what Paul, the problem that Paul has with works versus faith. It's dealing with the motives, the attitude, that what's happening in our heart. And 
when you have, and, and this is what I think Bob is getting at in this question of servile filial fear, because we're called to fear God. Uh, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, it's the only gift of the Spirit mentioned in Isaiah that's mentioned twice, fear of the Lord. Uh, all the early church fathers can continue to emphasize the fear of the Lord. In fact, I think all of the early apostolic yeah. fathers, every single time they talk about what do you do to bring up your kids, every single time they say you bring up your kids in the fear of the Lord. I mean, that's every single yeah. one of them says that over and over. But what's this fear? It's dealing with attitude and why we do the things in life that we do. In servile fear, any of us their parents know that when we have young kids that don't have the maturity and the wisdom to understand why they got to do something, we treat them with servile fear. They got to do it if they're going to get something. If they don't do it, they're going to get something else. I mean, that's what yeah. Paul says in Romans 4.4. 4. If you do this, you're going to get this reward. If you don't do it, you're going to get something else. Yeah. You're going to get hell or you're going to get heaven. And that was that deals with servile fear because we're dealing with people that do not have the maturity to understand the generosity of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. But as you grow in that understanding of God's mercy, you move into, hopefully, by grace, filial fear, so that the reason we're doing a good for a person, the reason we're giving of ourselves or sacrificing is not because we're trying to manipulate God into giving us something, but because we love him. We want him to be proud of us. We, we're doing it freely. So working mm -hmm. out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we're at an immature stage, means I'm going to do that because I don't want to go to hell. But eventually, mm -hmm. it's because we want to give God glory. That's right, the key. Right. Well, and you've given the difference there between the mystery religions, the pagan religions around Paul uh, in in Rome and in the Greco, the Greek world around him, that it even influenced the time, you know, the time of what we call Palestine today or Israel. In other words, their uh, attitude and the attitude of, of those that are seeking to uh, be happy is to avoid the wrath of the deity. In other words, just, it's, a, it's a servile fear. It's a fear just to keep the punishment of God at bay so that you don't get crushed you know, by, by, by God. But Paul says that the fear, and I think this is truly in the Old Testament, the, the, the fear of the Lord is a reverence and awe that one stands before God recognizing him as the great father, and one does that out of love, as it says in De Deuteronomy. Now, Paul says in Galatians that the law was like a paedagogos, is the Greek word, a, a tutor, to bring us from the state of servile fear to filial fear, to respect and love for God precisely because he loves us, and we realize that he loved us before we loved him. And we encounter today Catholics and other Christians that have either they, I have to say that they haven't matured, or at least they haven't come to an understanding of their faith and w to the point where they still think of our Christian faith in the level of servile fear. Yeah, well, when we think of doing our duty <clears throat> because something bad will happen if we don't, that's a servile kind of relationship. In other words, 
we all have duties and we have to fulfill those duties. But the, as you pointed out earlier, what's the motivation behind performing the duty? Do I go to mass because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do or my family expects me to? Or do I go to mass because I want to meet and love God? And uh, it's the same way. Why do I, you know, why do we do anything that's good? Is it because uh, we're, are we motivated by fear or by love? And this is where I think, Ken, that Martin Luther and John Calvin and others made the mistake is that in moving away from that idea, they want to move away from the idea that we are working to manipulate God. We are working to get our due and say, no, you don't earn your salvation that way. That in the process, they threw away works completely. And they Mm -hmm. ended up uh, denying the fact that, in fact, the way we live our life does affect eternity. What we do in living out our faith does reap rewards. Our Lord talked about that. Just do yeah. a, a go to any biblical commentary and look up the word rewards in the New Testament, and it's all throughout the New Testament. The idea of rewards, yeah. In, yeah. But it's it has to do with dealing with the maturity of our attitude of understanding our faith, understanding our Lord's gratitude, our, and our God's generosity, and why we are doing these things. What is the reason? And that is connected to how we understand what faith is. That was the point, as opposed to throwing out the baby with the bathwater, because then we end up with people that I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't matter how I live. Well, that's totally contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And well, absolutely. And although I don't think Calvin and Luther intended to have that consequence, the very perceptive Catholic um, leaders and theologians of of their day could say, but that's where that's going to lead if you're not careful. And you know what? It's interesting. I was just talking to an old Presbyterian friend of mine, and she says that's exactly what the, the, their Presbyterian church split into two churches precisely over that issue because the new pastor was not willing to emphasize the importance of repentance and turning back to God and living a holy life. And so uh, so they, they, the church is split over that very issue. Can I? I don't know if you struggle with that, but I remember... This was one of the reasons that led to my own journey towards the Catholic Church, because I was a a preacher of the once saved, always saved perspective, and Mm. uh, uh, was a big fan, and still am actually, of Billy Graham. But, you know, this idea that once you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you're saved. And, Mm. um, but what I struggled with as a pastor was that I felt impotent to challenge the people in my congregation to live in holiness because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, hey, if there's if it doesn't make a difference to my salvation, then okay. It, yeah, sure, it's nice that I shouldn't do these things, but, but you know, hey, I like doing them. You know, so, so what, what was our clout to tell them to quit doing those things? And my struggle was, as a pastor, I knew some of the private lives of the people in my congregation. I knew what they were, the way they were proclaiming their faith on the outside, but I knew their private lives. And, but I had very little impetus to challenge them because this particular theology just took out the foundation 
from the authority that I had as a pastor to challenge them to live holy lives. Well, I think that uh, shows that uh, there are certain dangers, and when we emphasize certain aspects of uh, that, even themselves, uh, you know, the faith, the justification by faith, even though it's true, it can lead to certain wrong things. What our text for today does emphasize, however, is that what faith did for Abraham was to put him on the path to salvation, that is, on the path of following God, but the rest of his life was an outworking of that faith that was, as we're adding works to that faith, as it were. Uh, and, it, and the text talks about that, how he trusted God that he would give him an heir. And if we look back at Genesis, we will see um, how true that is, that faith put him on the path, but then he had to walk the path by his faith and his works. Well, I appreciate the email that Bob sent because I do think it helps us address the background to the very text that we're looking at, Ken. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to read. We're looking at today at Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through the end of the chapter 25. And Ken, what I'd like to do is I'll read 13 through 17 to begin with, if I would. Mm. Uh, and then if, if uh, I'll throw that back to you to to kind of give us an overview of how this fits into the bigger picture of the, of the wider argument that we're kind of stepping into right now, mm-hmm. uh, bring our, our listeners up to date to uh, the context of what we've been looking at. Let me begin with verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, Ken, I just have to make a comment here. In front of me is my old Presbyterian Protestant preaching Bible. I always use the RSV <laughs> because it seemed to be the one book that most Protestants generally uh, shared, the one translation, excuse me. But I, I happen to notice that in this section, verse 13 through, that I've, circled and highlighted all the references to faith that are in here, mm. believed in him, because from my perspective, that's all that I was, that was the lens through which I was hearing everything. It's all about faith. It's not about works. And so I was emphasizing that the promise to Abraham and his descendants came through faith, the righteousness of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that, what we're doing in chapter, thir- in verse 13 now that you read when he says that the promise was uh, came to Abraham not through the law but uh, but through faith, he's saying here that uh, he's ch- changing slightly his subject that he was talking about in the first previous twelve verses of chapter four. You may recall from when we were last talking about this that in Romans chapter four verses one through twelve, Paul was trying to make the point that the blessing of the forgiveness of sin did not come to Abraham or to anyone uh, because they were circumcised. He makes the point that Abraham was 
justified by faith before he was circumcised. In other words, Genesis chapter 15 that he quotes from comes before Genesis chapter 17 when he was given the covenant of circumcision. And the point he's making more generally here then is that the Gentiles are equally uh, on an equal footing with the Jews, even though the circumcision was just given to the Jews. Nevertheless, the Gentiles that have been brought into the new people of God are equally a part of the people of God. And Abraham is equally their forefather because they believed in Christ, the seed of Abraham. So now uh, Abraham is, excuse me, <coughs> Abraham is, um, is brought up again. The promise to Abraham is given not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of the righteousness of faith. And what was that promise? That promise was that the, that you'll have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore that you'll possess this land. This is all in Genesis chapter 12 and, and 15. Now, um, so Paul is again emphasizing that this promise uh, given to Abraham came through and, and was received rather on the basis of of faith. And then the law um, showed us our need for that faith even more deeply in Abraham's life and in Moses' life and in the life of Israel because when when a person is aware of sin uh, because they've been told not to do something, then they become aware that they're transgressors and even in need of more grace in their lives. Verse 14 again, Ken, to me really emphasizes that the issue behind all of this discussion by Paul is the attitude of gratitude through which Mm -hmm. either they do works of the law or whether they have faith. It's really our attitude of thanksgiving that makes all the difference. Because a person can say, I've been circumcised, therefore God owes me. Yeah. Or they can say, I have faith in Jesus, and therefore God owes me. And that's what the once saved, always saved theology actually says. Because I put my faith in Jesus, God owes me. And that is approaching either side, whether it's works of the law or faith alone, from a servile perspective. You know, it's all about whether I'm going to heaven or hell, and I'm either, I've, I've done these things, or... Hey, I was baptized, therefore God owes me. I go to Mass, therefore God owes me. I've been a good person, therefore God owes me. And But the underlying issue is that it's the attitude that's the problem. And Abraham's faith was not a, okay, God, I'm going to leave Ur, therefore you owe me, or I I trust Mm -hmm. you, therefore you you owe me. No, it is a surrendering faith into the hands of God. God, I trust you to always provide what's best for me or for my family. And so I'm I'm not going to demand anything of you. I'm going to trust you. That's the faith that Paul's trying to get these Christians, whether they're Jew or former Gentiles, to recognize that it's all by grace. It's all his generosity. I think that's what verse 16 is saying very clearly, yeah. And I think the way that it was translated there in the RSV is quite good. He says, this is why it depends on faith. In other words, why did God make it depend upon faith and not upon 
the giving of the law at Sinai. And he says the reason is so that you would understand that it is by grace, and it's not according to uh, some merit of our own. Now, an important thing, I think, to recognize here, because the word merit is used a lot in Catholic theology, and it has slightly different meanings. Um, the, um, the merit that we have, we have to have merits, perfect merits in order to go to heaven. But we don't have those merits. How do we get them? Well, Christ merited heaven for us, but he gives those merits to us as a free gift. And that's what we receive by faith. And faith takes the step of entry into relationship with Christ through baptism. So heaven doesn't cost us anything, but it costs Christ everything. And so by his merits being poured into us, that's how we achieve heaven. So when he says this is the reason why it was a faith so that it would be according to grace. This is and and this the purpose of that. So the promise would be firm or confirmed to Abraham's seed. And who are his seed? Both Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, Ken, I've I've been a Catholic for over 20 years, and I still think the whole idea of merit uh, uh, uncomfortable um, because of my background, which basically, whether I realized it or not, that a, a, a big part of Protestant theology is set against the idea of merit because just the concept of yeah. merit is uh, yeah. what Paul had w- said in verse 4. You know, now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due or his merit. And so yeah. it was, it, it's an awkward concept. Uh, mm-hmm. And people want to say, well, excuse me, where'd this idea of meriting heaven come from? Where is it in the Bible? Uh, or is it just mm-hmm. a Catholic? Uh, scholastic way of understanding, trying to explain how uh, a believer enters into heaven. Is that where this idea was created, this idea of merit? Uh, maybe after the break, can we talk about that? Because now we've opened that can of worms. Uh, maybe we ought to clarify it. Where'd the idea of good. merit come from anyway? And do we? how can we accept that and use it as a grid for understanding not only our faith, but what Paul's saying in Romans. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Rodi with Dr. Kenneth Hall. We'll be with you in just a moment. Thank you. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Thank you for joining us, all of you. And uh, just one other side comment, Ken, uh, I haven't really told the audience this, but I've been starting to do as a, an offshoot of Deep in Scripture each week some reflections on the Mass readings for the coming Sunday. And uh, this, on the one hand, comes out of our idea about being deep in Scripture uh, deep in history draws us deeper to Christ. Uh, I'm not doing these reflections, which you can connect to, those of you listening, by going to the deepinscripture.com website or coming on network website, chnetwork.org. Uh, I think they're on YouTube and all those other places uh, that uh, my son, John Mark, who's our IT guy, puts them everywhere. But I'm not doing them, Ken, because I think I'm the sharpest knife in the drawer by any means. But in, I'm reflecting on these Scripture readings, partially because I'm fascinated by how the church in her wisdom has put together an Old Testament, a New Testament, and a gospel reading as a guide to understanding the meaning of the gospel. I think it's a fascinating gift that the church has done in the lectionary. But I'm also reflecting on why it's important to read these and understand these scriptures through the teaching of the church as compared to where I used to preach on these verses, Ken, I know you always were a perfect preacher and you never got any off offline <laughs> at all uh, because of our Calvinist theology. But uh, part of my goal in my short reflections is just talk about why it's important to see Scripture through the eyes of the church. And, of course, that's what we try to do in this program. Ken, before the break, you um, you brought up this uh, sticky wicket of merits, and I say it's a sticky wicket because I, I really never used that idea whatsoever when I was a Calvinist and uh, found it a little uncomfortable to understand it when I came into the church. Uh, but as you mentioned, the way you explained it, it's really not our meriting because of the works that we do, even because of the faith that we've had. It's, yeah. it's the gift of grace, which is really what merits talk about. But it, it reminds me of a verse in Colossians where Paul said, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And it seems that that verse deals with the sharing that we have with Christ through our suffering and, and through our surrender in this receiving of merits not only for ourselves but for the whole church. Yeah, it's. It, I think that's a, 
an excellent verse to point to because what that what that shows is what um, Catholic theology is so perfectly expressed by Saint Thomas Aquinas um, in the 13th century uh, has says that the key to understanding salvation is the notion of participation and you talked about sharing and the Greek word for both of those is koinonia. So the grace is God's allowing us to participate in his inner Trinitarian life. And we can't do that of our own power. And so therefore he has to come down to us. So Christ coming into the world to live as a man, to live perfectly the law, to die upon the cross and rise again, all of that is God's grace in our lives. Now, what Christ did in all of that was to merit the rewards of eternal life. I was trying to think of the um, the last prayer, you know, uh, every day every, at noon I try to pray the Angelus prayer, you know, and the last prayer in that series of prayers in the Angelus says, Pour forth we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection. In other words, it's only by God pouring his grace into our hearts, allowing us to participate in his life, that we can eventually receive the the grace uh, uh, to go to heaven. But the church also calls that very wisely the merits, because it's not our merits, but it's Christ's merits that he earned for us, poured into our hearts, and in the Catechism, it puts it very well, and this is in, for those that, of our audience that may want to refer to the Catechism, it's in paragraph 2008, 2008, in which he says that the merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. In other words, it's not because we desired it, it's because he chose to associate us with the work of his grace. So by his grace, by his free will, he offers us this grace, and then he calls us in to receive more grace and more merit through Christ. Ken, that's one of the reasons why I've always thought that the first letter of John is one of the deepest letters in Scripture. I think that's uh, true. And uh, it, which is why, uh, on, a, on a simple level, it's often hard to, I think, fully understand. Uh, And I think John was writing from the level of the seventh castle of St. Teresa of Avila (laughs) when he was Mm -hmm. writing that down to the rest of us at the struggling at the first level. But but he begins his letter when he says, uh, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's that participation you were talking about. That sharing. That word fellowship is koinonia. That word is that sharing. That was the reason he's writing that letter, that we might share in that, have that uh, uh, koinonia with Christ. And it's not just coffee and donuts. I mean, this is the sharing of the graces uh, the the, exactly. the humbling, the sacrificial, the the fully gratitude, uh, gracious accepting of what God has for us, not requiring anything of Him, just letting mm-hmm. Him be the free giver of all that He has and wants to give to us. Well, and I'm so glad you read that verse because 
you notice here's the apostle saying that we may have this fellowship, we may share this with you. And this is what we as Catholics believe is that God has deposited within the church these graces, and then it's by participating in the life of the church and through that in the life of God that we receive the graces that we need. The message of the free grace of God that costs us nothing and yet costs us everything. <laughs> it costs us nothing. This is the point that Paul is making. And by the way, the Catechism, again, uh, says this beautifully in, chapter, in uh, paragraph 2010, 2010. It says, Since the initiative belongs to God in, in the order of grace, and it stresses now, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification as the beginning of conversion. No one can merit that. That gift that's normally given to us in our baptism is a completely free gift. Once we're brought into that state of grace, then we begin the journey that includes our works as receiving more grace to be able to make it to heaven. And that seems to me to be exactly what Paul is saying here in verses 18 through 25, which is the end of our text, when he talks about Abraham believing in God, believing in God, uh, even against hope, he believed in hope. And Paul wrote, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So there's Paul's explanation of, you know, Ken, once, it seems to me that once we, you under, once we recognize what Paul was trying to get at, as I set aside my old Calvinist lenses and listen, this explanation by Paul just makes all the sense in the world in explaining that, uh, again, it's not, our works are not to try and obligate God to us in any way, but we do, our, our faith and works are one in the same coin as we mm-hmm. surrender to God for the promise he's given to us in Jesus Christ. Well, notice too, in verse 18, I like like the way the language says here in the RSV version that you had read earlier. It says, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Now, think about that. Abraham was to be the father of many nations or the father of many, many peoples. And... That was, in a sense, his identity given to him by God. In fact, it's so much so that he changed his name from Avram to Avraham, right? Now you're the father of many nations. So by believing that God was, was asking him to do that, to have that vocation, to have that identity, he was believing 
uh, that God would bring it about. And there's, there's a very important application there. In other words, God says to us in our baptism, you are my child. That is your identity. That is your vocation. Accept that, and then you're living by faith. So he, so Abraham didn't believe that. But notice that what Paul says here is that faith, that Abraham's faith was also worked out in the way that he lived. And he did that by not doubting that God was able to do exactly what he said. He's now referring to the story in Genesis chapter 18, when the three visitors come to Abraham and they say to him, next year, we're going to come back and Ab- and Sarah's going to have a baby. And remember Abraham's response? It is both reverent and somewhat doubtful. Now, Paul, Paul says here that he didn't doubt. I think what Paul is saying is, look at the whole story. Don't just look at the moment in which maybe he did have doubts, but look at the whole story and see where it's leading. We know that in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah had this expression. You know, she started laughing, right? And then one of the visitors says, why did Sarah laugh? Of course, she denied it. No, I didn't laugh. And that's why she named her son, and he named the son Isaac, because Yitzchak in Hebrew means to laugh, right? Now, what Paul seems to be doing is he's interpreting that text as saying that he looked at the empirical situation. He was 100 years old. His wife was as good as dead as far as childbearing was concerned. Her womb was as good as dead. And yet... With respect to the promise of God, in that respect, he did not doubt. He walked by faith. And our journey in life is a journey of faith, of trusting God, that he will do it. Now, you know, every one of us as Christians, whether we're Catholic or not, can get easily discouraged. And Abraham then provides us with the encouragement to be strong in faith and not to doubt that God's promise will be brought about. We need that in our day, I think, Marcus, because uh, we have a lot around us that could be easily discouraging to us. But it's through faith and through the nurturing of that faith on a day-to-day basis in prayer, in the Eucharist, in Mass, in Christian uh, fellowship, that we will find the strength to continue the journey. Yeah, at the end of verse 23 beginning of verse 24, when Paul says these were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. Mm -hmm. That um, is important in my mind because when you look back in verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. Um, I think we live in an age quite different than theirs in the sense that we've been so influenced in this 21st century over such a long period by bad theology that far too many people just presume that when we die, we go to heaven. We're all going to die and go to heaven. Yeah, I don't want to get too dramatic, but I think that's one of the big lies that's out there today. Yeah, and yeah. Ken, you've done funerals, and I've done funerals over the years uh, as pastors where, I mean, it was really hard for us to not just convey that presumption for everyone that we're doing a funeral for. Yeah, well, you know, when they're, they're with Jesus, and and uh, that keeps everybody happy. But um, the, the truth is that we take that 
so just too easily as if we're in no danger whatsoever yeah, yeah, yeah. of spending eternity with God. On the one hand, it could be those, well, I accepted Jesus 20 years ago at a Bible camp, and therefore I'm saved. So there's that presumption. And so depending, doesn't matter how they live or even how well they believe or whether they go to church anymore, whether they donate any alms or they do anything, they say, well, you know, I believed in Jesus. Uh, or maybe they mm-hmm. still say, well, I believe in Jesus, so I'll be saved. Or, yeah, I was baptized. Uh, you know, I go to I go to mass pretty often, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, I say the beads once in a while. You know, and there's that presumption because we just God would not. We have this idea in ourselves that well, God wouldn't turn me away. We have mm-hmm. that presumption, yeah. that arrogant, self-centered presumption. Whereas, you know, this idea of in yeah. hope, he believed yeah. against hope. I think these earliest yeah. Jewish and Gentile Christians did not have that presumption that they were all automatically going to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of the reason that Paul uses the language of verse 18, against hope, he believed in hope, is to say that to all the empirical to empirical observations there was no reason to to have any hope and frankly if i look out in the world today i think yeah there's not much hope for our world uh it's it seems to be going to hell in a handbasket uh and many christians many just christians uh catholics and non-catholics you look at their lives you look at their values we look at i'm not pointing fingers us how quickly, yeah. easily, like frogs in the old proverbial pot, that we've just accepted the presumptions um, sure, sure. of of this. But Paul says these written these words are written not just for for Abraham, but for us. Well, and that, and that's one of the reasons why we have not only the story of Abraham in, in the Old Testament Genesis, but these very profound reflections upon that life of Abraham is because in a very real sense, we're all called to leave our Ur of the Chaldees and to go to the promised land that God is going to show us. And we have no idea what heaven is really like. We have these literary metaphors in Scripture. but we really, And if we are so attached to our own home, like Ur of the Chaldees, like Abraham was, or presumably was, then, then uh, no, we won't find our way to the promised land. But that's why Abraham has given this, given us this promise. If we believe in, in, in his seed, the seed that is Christ, then we have left our Ur of the Chaldees. We've left pagan society, as the church fathers say, and we are going on the journey to our heavenly home. This, by the way, St. Augustine says so beautifully in his, his doctrine, uh, in his treatise, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian doctrine. He says, we leave, and we leave that Gentile society behind, and let's set our sights upon the heavenly things. As we do that, then we're led by faith. Uh, we, we do it in faith, and we're, we live it out in the way that we live in our works. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord turned to his mostly Jewish audience, we presume, um, many of whom, obviously, because they had come away from their 
the busyness of their life to break away to come to follow and hear Jesus were already showing an interest in him. Um, and uh, if we remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He was calling for holiness. He was calling for surrender. He was calling for authentic faith and obedience, not the kind that presumes on God owing us anything, but a totally open-handed surrender to God. And in that, he gives in in the great new law, which is the Sermon on the Mount, the way we are to live. Later, at another time, when he's speaking to maybe the same group of folk, folk out of that group comes a man called a rich young ruler who says, what must I do? And Jesus doesn't say, well, you don't have to do anything. Just believe in me. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> he, he says, uh, well, obey the commandments. And, and the man went through the list and he had done them. Jesus went through the list and the man done. So in other words, the man had done the works of the law, essentially. And Jesus says, there's more. And he goes through the issues of detachment, go and sell and give it away and follow me. This, And that's when Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 19, truly, like when he says earlier, if you would be perfect, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell, give it away. He deals with this holiness. Well, then he says, and the man goes away. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples say, well, whoa, well, then who can be saved? Yeah, exactly. Who, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And he, he gets, the, the reason I bring this up, this deals with what Paul is dealing with here, is that it's impossible for us through our attachments to this world to, yeah. to earn eternity. Rather, it is through breaking from these attachments, from Ur, whatever it is that we hold on to. Because if we look at our lives, we're going to be like Abraham and said, and, and said I, I'm 100 years old. I can't have a kid. We can, we can make a list of all the things in our life, and we can say, I'm this or I'm that, or I've done this or I've done this or I've not done this. I can't yeah. make heaven. And that's why Jesus says, no, it's impossible with us, but with God, it's all possible. And that's the life of Abraham proving that. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's seen so many times in the lives of the great saints because they, they faced the same or greater difficulties than we've had in our lives. And yet what they did not do was they did not despair. In a sense, despair is the the very last um the very last rung on the ladder and, and, and could really destroy a person. But no matter how low and difficult, it's to place that trust in God. And, and you mentioned the, the rich wrong ruler. You know, when Jesus said, do the commandments, and then he lists out the ones, but those are the commandments that he lists out. Those are the commandments that have to do with our relationship with man or with one another. So what the, the rich young ruler failed to do was to put God first. That's why Jesus says to him, go and sell all you have. In other words, you're more attached to to your things than you are to God. And that's what Abraham is reminding us of. It. That's the life of Abraham, is that we put God first and we put all those other things 
in their proper place. Yeah, one of the verses we looked at earlier, Paul emphasizes that it's not that circumcision in itself is worthless. And I want to make that mm. point. When we're saying that uh, the danger of the presumption of baptism or the danger of presumption of, of faith alone is not meant to degrade baptism when we say that or to degrade faith yeah. alone, but rather yeah. to point out their true purpose for the sacrament of baptism, bringing you into the fellowship, into the graces, the reception of the graces, freely given so that uh, so that we are empowered by grace to receive that which God gives us out of his generosity. And Christ gave us baptism and called us to the baptism in faith so that we can receive these graces. Not to, therefore, they're not important, so we throw them aside. We don't need that. All I need is faith in Jesus. No, that's a misunderstanding of Paul that has led to so many misunderstandings throughout the Christian world. Mm. Yeah, you know, that's a great point because Paul's point here about circumcision is not that it's worthless. It, it gave people an identity to be a part of the people of God. But what was the purpose of circumcision? Well, Jeremiah tells us that it is to circumcise the heart. The circumcision circumcision outwardly was to be a sign to a person to be circumcised inwardly. And so in the same way, baptism uh, conveys the forgiveness of sins, but it's also a sign to remind us to continue to seek the forgiveness of sins through Christ. All right, Ken. We're going to pick up then next week with Romans chapter 5. And to a real extent, Ken, I've been anxious and excited for us to get to chapter 5. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not that Paul gets bogged down in chapter 4, but he's, he's dealing with important issues, especially for his day, and which I think have led to problems in Christianity from a misunderstanding of faith and works and justification. But but chapter 5, Ken, you really get into the results of what justification does in our lives. I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Ken. And thank you for joining us once again. We appreciate your comments. Uh, please send us an email if you would. You can go to deepinscripture.com or uh, you can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, is our time together an encouragement to you, helping you? open scriptures and be drawn closer to Christ and his church. That's our goal. And as we mentioned earlier, it's, it's so that we can freely receive all that God desires to give us through his son, Jesus, our Lord. God bless you. See you next week.